everyone deserves the right to to live and have basic needs met and be healthy and live violence free period exclamation point underline bolded You're listening to Navigating with Integrity, a conversation series mind mapping crisis response and nonprofit leadership and exploring what it means to dismantle white supremacy culture in our workplaces. This podcast is hosted by Woman Inc., a San Francisco based nonprofit that has been serving the city and larger Bay Area since 1978. We support survivors of domestic violence and their loved ones on their healing journeys, bridging value rich networks designed to address intersections of violence. So my name is Alicia Campos Padilla Paz. My pronouns are she, her, and I help with outreach, with presentations. Um, I also get to facilitate our 40-hour training and recruit our volunteers. When I'm not working, I am a baker. Um, I love to cuddle with my puppy. I'm a San Francisco native, loud and proud. And I am Latina. <laughs> um, my name is Shayna. My pronouns are she, her. I, right now, am a resident of Seattle. I moved here to go back to school for social work. Prior to this, uh, I worked at Woman Inc., I guess now for the past five years, and did like a word a lot of different hats but right now I'm supporting with this podcast and doing some peer counseling coordination and sometimes help with CROC cooperative restraining order clinic intakes and I am mixed race I'm Japanese Korean and white and in my free time I enjoy my morning coffee rituals I love Netflix binging around the lake near my house and I'm kind of an obsessive new cat mom. My name is Jill Zuiza and I work at Woman Inc. I've worked there for 13 years and I've done a lot of different things there and I still do a lot of different things there, here, slash here. I help a lot with the development and I think I I think I do a lot of like systems things there (laughs) here and you know help with the training and counseling all the things we all do all the things anyone who works at a nonprofit knows that we all do all the things right I am a white person of Polish descent second generation Polish immigrant and When I'm not working, I am probably watching or thinking about horror movies. I'm Midwestern, so really love going and visiting um, Midwestern cities. And I have two dogs, and they are very, very, very cute. I love David Bowie and Susie and the Banshees. My favorite movie is Halloween. That's me. So today we're going to be talking a little bit more about core values. So to start, 
what are we learning about ourselves in this moment? That's a really big question. And um, I think there's a lot that I'm learning personally and also from the frame of the organization. But one thing that sticks out, I think, is um, I think I I think we're learning just how powerful a platform can be. And the more transparent you become with your community, you can really build bridges, but you also, and not, you also need to be ready to hear some criticism of those values that we are expressing and and sharing with the community. You know, there's going to be folks that don't share the same opinion and that's, that's really okay. Uh, And I think it's just kind of the preparedness for that. So when you don't put yourself out there in a big way, you don't hear that criticism, but you also don't build that community as meaningfully as when you do, if that, if that makes any sense. I'm learning who we can go to. And also, I think it's really a good thing to learn when people have differences of opinion. And I know when I've heard them, I've thought about them. And I think it deepens your values potentially or helps you see things a little differently than that. It might not change your how you go about your work. And it's still very valuable to take a breath and think about it. I think I'm learning about Womanig and myself in this moment. I'm curious, Alicia, I know you're facilitating, but I'm wondering if you have anything to add to that. I'm thinking. I feel like my mind is going in so many different ways. Um, I think the first thing that came to mind was adaptability and just how this pandemic has really... I'm one that struggles with, like, change, especially sudden change. Um, So it was interesting to really feel this, like, crisis across the board at the individual level of like wanting to avoid getting sick and then um how do we continue doing the work as well so like in a more like organizational level um and then just seeing like everyone else struggling with the same thing and really trying out new things and um also just being vulnerable with like all the feelings that were coming up I think also communication. I felt that I struggled with communicating a lot of um, like what was really happening when like this pandemic was like first coming out. And I was definitely feeling the crisis from everyone. Um, And so it was finding a way to sort of communicate through various different forms, um, with various different types of people, different languages, whether it be about like what's happening with your services or training to like, how do I avoid getting sick? Um, how does this impact safety planning for like clients, individuals, like just friends and family members as well? Um, so yeah, I think communication is like a huge thing that I was like, I thought I was okay at this, but like I I really need to work on this. 
Yeah, on a personal level, I was remember I remember like a month into shelter in place, noticing that like we just really don't like to sit with ourselves for long periods of time and not have a way out of it. I'm I'm also wondering how that has impacted people's adaptability and ability to communicate during this time. Because there's like always crises happening all at the same time. It just feels very magnified when we're confined to our homes <laughs> and like no way to like exit that space in, in your brain or exit the information flooding on the internet. So I think that's interesting too, because it's not like it's not like these things didn't exist before sheltering in place, right? It's like it's not like police violence wasn't an extreme problem before this time. I kept thinking like now I'm going on a tangent, but I do think it's all connected. I was thinking when the video came out with George Floyd and there was just a giant response to it, I was like, I, I'm wondering why that was the, why was that the catalyst when this just shit happens all the time? Why do we need to be stuck and see like this very racist and violent way that somebody died in front of us and watch the whole nine minute process to feel outraged enough to want to do something about it. And I'm just sitting here wondering, like, if we were doing our day-to-day, -day, would that just been another, like, horrible thing that happened and people didn't galvanize together around it? I just, I feel like, I feel like it's a real looking glass into the way that we function and how much capitalism and our obsession with our own comfortability allows us to just not notice really horrible things that are happening all the time what happens when momentum plateaus, when people with privilege are able to escape into their day-to-day -day busyness again. And then, you know, I don't know, how does that replicate in, in our workspaces and, and doing like direct service work or people who are doing community building or policy work? I hope that wasn't too tangential. Tangential. <laughs> <laughs> Words. I don't think so. I think there's something to that. I know when this all started with, with COVID and at least here in California the, and the Bay Area specifically, there was a relatively shift, like swift response to it. And, you know, we were told we had to shelter in place and before other places in the country. And, and um, clearly I, you know, I, I that was, the right thing to do. I, I don't take any issue with that. It, but I also was kind of found myself really pissed off because it was like, okay, here's the pandemic we're going to respond to. You know, we're not going to respond to racism this way. We're not going to respond to domestic violence this way. Like racism, domestic violence, you know, that has killed, murdered more people than COVID but we don't take a collective stop. Mm -hmm. And then I just, I was talking to some friends about it and just being like, wow, I didn't realize I was so angry. Like, you know, I didn't realize I was so angry about it. And so there was this part of me that felt, I think you're right, Shana. I think it's interesting to, to examine why it is that George Floyd's murder on film is what 
catalyzed this most recent iteration of um, a movement. And, you know, in part, I think it might just be because people with privilege, white people, people with a lot of money, you know, whatever the case may be, had no place else to look, you know, that's really powerful to be in a, a space of collective pause. And what can you do with that? So I guess I'm, I'm also learning. I've had a lot of really kind of great conversations with people that I really was surprised that I was able to have these conversations with around racism and domestic violence. And I guess I'm learning the value of a collective pause. It's really been difficult and also very bountiful in other things that are happening as a result. How's that for a tangent, friends? <laughs> I I can't even like help but think that, yeah, the murder of George Floyd really was actually one thing that came to mind too in talking also even about communication. Um, because up until the video was released on news outlets, because um, I feel like it was already going around on social media, and then it just took the news a little bit more time to catch up because, you know, they're the news. But up until, like, the news caught wind of it, every single minute of the news aside from weather and traffic, was COVID-related. And the deaths and how other countries are handling it and, like, people who are struggling. And then every so often they'll touch upon, like, domestic violence and COVID um, if they felt comfortable doing so. And then once the video came out, they started talking about it. And then, you know, of course, there was, like, all the uprisings. And then even how it was portrayed in the media, you know, like, and all these opinions came out and all these, like, different perspectives. And and then the interesting, too, the interesting thing that I also found, too, was how slowly but surely the coverage started getting less and less. And then all of a sudden we hear, like, you know, defund the police or abolishing prisons. And it's like, these aren't new conversations that are just now happening like these have been happening for many many years and then to see how now like mainstream media is now all of a sudden taking interest in like highlighting these important topics which have been like social justice issues for so long um and seeing like for example fox to i think some other um like channels networks started like having these conversations around like race and like racism and why it matters and I remember like seeing it and I'm just like I am so not interested in looking at these like watered down conversations that still won't get to like the systemic issue I was just more curious to be like who the idea is great because yes we should be talking about race we should be talking about race and how it impacts everything every part of our lives and also like who are you calling in to do this work with you and as a network 
are the individuals who are covering like these stories and stuff, are they doing their own internal work? Is the network itself like holding space, not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera at like, is everyone involved um, in dismantling racism at that network? And if so, how does that look like? Or is that just like a one-time training for two or three hours that everyone's like participating in so yeah it really just made me think more about who's behind this who are you involving are you once again turning on historically marginalized communities and people of color to teach you versus digging up work that already exists and finding ways and outlets to like come together and like unlearn the news has they're very strategic about how they showcase things and then the larger call of like well as a news outlet we have a say in this but it's sometimes it feels like they're playing devil's advocate and like let's call on other people to see the difference of opinion and it's just like no when it comes to basic human rights there should never be like varying opinions it's like no everyone deserves the right to to live and have basic needs met and be healthy and live violence free period exclamation point underlined bolded so another tangent (laughs) no it's it's super related to your point, why do we why are we treating people's humanity like an intellectual exercise? It's not that's not what this is. I don't wanna play devil's advocate with you. Kind of backtracking to something you said earlier, Alicia, about uh people deciding, oh racism, that's a thing. We should do something about that. Let's bring in some trainings and it also reminds me of another tweet. <laughs> That was like, the revolution will not be diversity and inclusion trainings. I was like, that shit's super real. Because honestly, that's what so many places do, especially in academia, especially in nonprofit land, where they're just like, oh, we can fix this by giving someone a two-hour workshop. And I guess going back to like this conversation on core values, if you're personal and collective core values are not to dismantle racism and all of the other isms to dismantle like oppression and shitty power dynamics in yourself and your relationships and the places that you work at, then you're not going to go anywhere. It's going to full stop after that two hour training because you're not going to integrate that. I'm really tired of people just being like, we support this in theory. Here's a lot of lip service. Look at our website. We got all the key language on there. We got that social justice jargon down. Uh, We use it in our grants. And just like the practices just don't embody that. It just shows that you haven't done the work and you're not committed to doing the work. I just truly, because if you were, you'd work on that. You wouldn't just say these things and leave it be at the table that it was presented to you at. Yeah, absolutely. I agree one million percent. And I've actually had these conversations with other folks and community leaders of like, you know, we are also in a really important moment in time where there is so many more resources that are available 
now in various languages too, which I'm excited about. Um, and there's no more excuse for it just to be a one time thing. That's not enough. Like, as you were saying, like I, and it drives me nuts that it's like, they almost pat themselves on the back or like, you know, they just wash their hands at the end of the day and like, okay, we're done. You know, we, we identified the, uh, three levels of, uh, oppression and, you know, we had a conversation about implicit and explicit bias and it's like what, maybe a one hour, sometimes a two hour conversation, then that's it. And, but yeah, it's like, as you said, it's like, there's no change happening there's no ongoing dialogue and conversation or even support for folks to begin to unlearn and all this stuff that we have just been like conditioned to believe is true and quote unquote right and is just so frustrating. It's part of what I appreciate about, you know, working at Woman Inc. and, you know, the way that we have also adapted our 40-hour training is that we have more of those opportunities to talk about anti-oppression and how does that impact our work at various levels and also calling upon the individual to think about, hey, how have we perpetuated this? How have we benefited from this? It doesn't make us horrible people. It just, we just have work to do. And you know, it's just, it's something that is done throughout our training and it continues to be done. And like volunteer meetings, you know, it comes up. I wish it was something that more organizations, more institutions, like just more people could be doing because in looking at, you know, organizations such as like San Francisco Women Against Rape, Kuav, they have three plus hour long conversations and community presentations on anti-oppression itself and that's that we're in this field of trying to dismantle racism and you know making sure that the folks that we serve can live violence-free healthier lives and we're going against all these other like outer systems that think that they're doing the work just offering a one-hour tailored presentation to their folks and sometimes they may ask us or other community organizations to do the work most of the time it's free as well which I'm also like no you got to pay us like you want us to help you have these conversations you also have to pay to do this because it's a lot of not just like work and like planning but it's a lot of like emotional labor as well that you want us to just come into your space not knowing like who the people are what we're stepping into and also not having the infrastructure to have those conversations I think the other thing I've witnessed is like yes we're going to talk about anti-oppression and how it shows up in our workplace so that way we can you know serve our folks better and treat our employees better but there's no real thought behind like and actually, we should maybe have ongoing conversations with specific people. We should offer emotional support ongoing or, you know, if there's possible time off, just other ways in which it can come up. But right now, it's just like, no, we're good with a one-time presentation once a year, if that. And 
We're down with it. Super down with the cause. Honestly, if I have to listen to another director level somebody say that we have a work group on this or a committee on this, so we're good to go. Can you provide more context about what does that mean? I just know more of that. (laughs) Yeah. I've, yeah. I, yes, I've heard that from a few different sources recently. I think it's interesting, too, because white supremacy culture might show up differently from group to group to group, of which you are a member of all of those groups. So it might show up one way in your organization. It might show up another in a different network or maybe another project you're working on. And so to think that we can have these conversations in one place at one time, and that is that solves it across the board without doing work in each of these different projects and, and communities and all these different iterations. And I, I'm like, it's not going to be easy. I, you know, <laughs> it's not going to be easy and it's also worth doing, right? I was listening this weekend. I was listening to this podcast. It's called Criminal. I don't know if you all have heard of it. It's it's very interesting. And they look at all these different types of people that have been deemed criminals in different countries, different situations, different contexts. One of the episodes I listened to this weekend was on the concept of forgiveness. And they talked a lot about the truth and reconciliation work done in South Africa and how they were bringing folks in who, uh, you know, basically were a part of this system, apartheid that murdered people, right? It was really interesting. And what I learned to ground it, I guess, in our core values and conversation is maybe I didn't learn it there, but it just really intensified the importance of If we're going to talk about forgiveness, if we're going to ask for forgiveness, we need to make ourselves 100% accountable and vulnerable and take on the harm that we've done and be open about it. You know, we're never, ever, ever entitled to forgiveness, even if we do make ourselves vulnerable. You know, we're not in control of where that message lands with people that harmed, we harmed or that are listening to us or they had a woman who was talking a lot about, yeah, you know, the concept of forgiveness when it doesn't work is when people come in and they feel they're entitled to it because they're going to show you a little bit of their truth. It just made me think of these, like you're saying, Shana, these conversations. It's like, well, I'm having these conversations in my organization and it's like, well, you know, in that context, maybe it's easier for you to be vulnerable. You know, I know it's easier for me to be vulnerable with my coworkers that it is with a large group of people I don't know. But without that vulnerability, the accountability doesn't mean the same thing. And, you know, it's not to say it's not of value. It's just, you know, being vulnerable with a small group of people you trust. The risk isn't really as big. And um, I don't know if it can get you to a space of shit, just forgiving yourself, you know, for, for harm you've done. 
in your work. I mean, when we ground it in domestic violence work, a lot of folks, white women, mostly women, who have done the work for a long time, like I have, we've done a lot of harm. That's systemically, that's one-on-one individually. And if we're ever gonna be in a space, and most a lot of that harm has been done to people of color, to trans people, to queer folks, who we basically kind of pushed to the margins of the work when at one point they were in the center of it, right? Um, and if we really wanna have conversations about white supremacy culture, we need to hold ourselves accountable for the harm that we've done by infusing it so deeply in the in the mainstream DB work. So I guess when we're having conversations around core values, I think it's really important and I've, again, it's something I've learned a lot or has just really kind of taken on this priority during all of this, whatever time we're in, the pandemic, I don't know, honesty and transparency and just account, taking accountability. It's what we want folks who do, who use abuse to do, right? We want those folks to hold themselves accountable so that we can change. And yet a lot of us aren't willing to do that ourselves. And so I'm hoping that it, what we can learn in that is empathy for others who do harm and use abuse. And maybe that will help us if we ground it in domestic violence work, maybe that will help us understand survivors and their kind of where they're at a little bit better and we might have more respect. And to me, that's the direct connect to at least divesting from police response, Um, understanding in our bones that we've gotten a lot of leeway. We as white people have gotten a lot of leeway for the harm that we've done and the abuse that we've used. No one's calling in the cops on us, right? But maybe we'll understand why Calling in a cop isn't always the best response and certainly not the response that we would hope for as white people who have done harm, who are doing harm without even knowing it in some instances and knowing it full well in others and just using abuse. Excuse my tangent, uh, but the core value of forgiveness and accountability and um, I think those are really I just see, I think we can make a lot of change that way, make a lot of space that way. Um. I have a lot of half-baked things happening here. I feel like, if you look at my brain right now, it's like a lot of webs, like pew, 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 pew. (laughs) When I'm thinking about like um, this idea that someone does harm and they apologize and they expect forgiveness. There's such an entitlement in that. And also there's such an attachment to an outcome that has nothing to do with repairing the harm. The, the inherent entitlement in white supremacy and the entitlement in domestic violence to have control over people's lives and over their autonomy and over how they might respond to you being harmful is so embedded in all the things like people don't make the connection between 
um, interpersonal, what people consider, you know, insular violence, family violence, which I learned, tangent, I learned that the DV movement changed from uh, when it started grassroots, they wanted to make the explicit case that it was a systemic issue on violence against women, which now we know are not the only recipients of abuse. But it was it was meant to make a cake that there's a cake, a cake, the case that abuse is about violence against women, a larger issue that's a lot more than just the individual act. And when it was co-opted by professionals who wanted to frame it as a crime control issue, they also framed it as a family violence issue instead because they wanted, they thought it would gain more traction if you could say this is not only a threat to our safety as a society, but also it's a threat to the nuclear family unit. And so I'm just thinking about the cultural control that was inserted there and how that ties directly back into the, the tactics people use to abuse their partners and how we've just been doing that ever since, just replicating those same patterns in different ways. And similarly in the paternalism that's offered by mainstream domestic violence orgs who were often stolen from women of color who started it. I looked it up too. I looked up so many organizations that um, started off in a very collective way, mostly by women of color and lesbian women were at the forefront of this also, who were also pushed out. Um, I looked up all of these organizations who started small and for and by the people who were most impacted by violence, and they still exist under their new iteration where they pulled in all these board members who were lawyers, who were corporate people. Um, it's predominantly white, and there's a bunch of dudes. What's up with that? When, like, that's not who was leading the work. It's just, you still see the remnants of that, that takeover. I don't know if that made sense to connect back, but I guess we started with entitlement and accountability. It brought up a little bit about like the, you know, history of the movement, at least like for me, it just made me think like, well, yeah, like, you know, if we're thinking about transformative justice and really being intentional about like accountability, this is a lot of how the movement was started. And it was very community-based, no police intervention, but there wasn't any funding involved. It wasn't until, you know, states started getting, like, you know, traction that they were like, oh, yeah, well, we can fund this if you report it. Like, there had to be conditions Mm -hmm. attached with, like, we'll help you if X, Y, and Z happens. And then, of course, that's how, like, a lot of, like, legislation happened, a lot of laws, like, which brings us to where we are today. <laughs> um, and, of course, like, a lot of that just didn't work. And, yeah, like, the whole the whole movement was taken away from, you know, folks who started it. And it just isn't even close, at least in, in my opinion and how I have been able to understand it, it's not even close to the intention of like addressing harm at, at the source and making sure that everyone gets support on both sides, not just the survivor, of course, centering the survivor and making sure that the survivor's needs are met, but also making sure that this 
harm isn't replicated again. So that involves like helping the person using abuse take accountability, however that looks like, and making sure that the survivor is the one that's calling the shots at it. And that just doesn't happen anymore. Or at least it doesn't happen in a lot of what we've seen now, um, especially once like the legal system is involved, right? It's the state that makes the decisions. So yeah, it just made it all connect for me in that way. Historically, what has happened, what's happening now as individuals, as like individual organizations, you know, what are we doing? How have we been able to shift our services and adapt to the needs coming back to what is it that our clients need or our participants need? What what are the needs of our communities? Which brings me to my last question, which is one of the questions that I opened up with, but who would we want to be if funding and outside expectations weren't a part of the equation? Hmm. Just to throw it out there. I I would want us to be able to hold the complexity of the both and. And by that, I mean seeing things for what they are. We've been talking a lot about laws and how the movement started. And it's not all or nothing, right? When people are defending and clinging on to what they like worked on as infallible and get defensive and defend defend it to the point where they can't look at the unintended consequences of that. It's just like anything else that you design, you know, hopefully you can go into that process holding the fact that this will need to be revised. This will need to be looked at. This might need to close at some point because it's relevant right now. It's not going to be relevant potentially in five years, 10 years, six months, next week. And there's like those levels of knowing and not knowing what you don't know. You know, so especially when you're going to do something like work to establish a law It's hard to know what you don't know, especially when you've closed out other perspectives into the creation of that. And I wanna be able to hold the complexity of the impact systemically of say, police response to also hold individual stories of maybe when that police response worked and ask them hard questions. Why did that work? You know, what is your race? What's your ethnicity? What's your social standing? Like, how much money do you have? You know, where do you live? Um, Being able to understand the differences between a systemic response versus an individual story. This has come up for women increasingly. And being able to hold all of that. And that's really hard, especially when you're trying to come to a decision or a stance um, to hold the complexity. And then from there, like come up with a slogan or like something. It's like, that's really hard. It's not always backed up by funders or what the community is expecting of you. What conversations do we need to have and what do we need to Who do we need to listen to? Who's being shut out? 
we've all had times when our grant funding does not is not is not reflective of what we need to be doing like, and we shift and shape shift to get that funding because we have to we have to live we might not like capitalism but it is the system we all must navigate to an extent that's another thing that's really been bothering me lately you guys it's like again i'm sorry to reiterate and keep coming back to like defensiveness but it's like when we have conversations about defunding and divesting from police response I'm, I just, I'm just starting to see it as like people just bumping up against the same wall over and over when we know, like, I don't, it's not a controversial statement to make that CBOs see more traffic on our lines than 911 does. We deal directly with situations of domestic violence way more than the police are called. So if you just want to dumb it down to numbers and you're that's all you're about and that's your number one thing, you have worship of the written word, right there, it's like divesting from the police should not be a controversial thing, especially if you're in this field. And yet it is. It is. And I'm like, why? Is it because you spent decades working with them and you 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 were maybe one of those people who thought if we do a diversity training that the police response is going to be better and that's going to undo the origin of systemic racism that exists within that department and that origin of misogyny and the origins of transphobia and homophobia like not you know like why why are you so attached to that i don't understand yeah i just i just want to be able to like have hold the the complexity of that and just be like, yes, in some cases and systemically, hell no, no. Yeah, I don't think it's at all like um, extreme as some people might suggest to ask people to consider that maybe if we allocated more resources to changing the conditions that propagate violence, that maybe we wouldn't feel like we need to respond to like this you know punitive entity like the police i just don't think that that's an extreme thing to say i don't think it's an extreme thing to say that we should be reallocating more funding towards groups that provide social service because clearly that's what people need people need housing people need care people need access to mental health support people need those things like It reminds me of that analogy where it's like, if you only have a hammer, everything's a nail or something like that. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's actually what I was thinking about, too. This came up while I was listening to both of you, and it made me think about one of the podcasts that I've heard. Um, it was an interview with Miriam Kaba, and she was talking about abolishing the police and how you know, a lot to what you were saying, Jill, a lot of community organizations are the ones that are dealing with this crisis the most with little to no resources at all. And how there's no question towards the police about, you know, what, how has violence 
been reduced? Like how, how, like, what does that look like? What are the results? What's your proof that this is now a safer home or a safer community? However, if you were to reallocate that funding to community orgs who have the training, the mindset, and even the trust of the community, how, I mean, I'm including Woman Inc. (laughs) Um, And just, I mean, community members too, like how we would be able to support our community so much more in, you know, reducing violence. And that would be one of my visions is like, you know, a client needs housing, we will get them housing. A client Uh needs a job, we will help them get a job. They need supplies for the home, we will get that for them. Just basic needs to provide a better quality of life for folks. And I just don't, I feel like right now we're just thinking very, not us, but just larger (laughs) world and systems are just thinking so very limited and like, oh my God, this world is going to be in chaos if we don't have the police. Well, the world is already in chaos with the police. So Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't understand what that logic is and it's just not working. For some folks, yes, right? But for like the large majority and the folks that we serve day to day, we face a different reality. It's interesting because but a lot of pushback is coming from other folks in the DV field. Mm. And to me, it's ludicrous when there actually are like, I think of some organizations that are very, like what they do is restorative justice. That's what they do. There are people out there doing transformative justice as a response to domestic violence and restorative justice. Sure. You know, that's kind of after the fact, right? Like someone's been quote unquote, like busted or gotten in trouble, or maybe they're in jail or they've they're in prison or they've done some sort of, they're in that system. They're in the criminal legal system, but the work is very different than just lock them up and, throw away the key and they're doing really groundbreaking work it's it's happening it's happening in our city but yet we can't talk about divesting from the police department we can't even talk about that without i mean i want to create i want there to be space for people to share their legitimate concerns so that we don't replicate patterns that we've replicated in the past where we don't think about unintended consequences and we don't think about who's not in the room having the conversation and all the things and also i'm like you're just stopping the conversation this you're seeing this somehow as like an attack or something and it's like no one's attacking you the people that want probably are most harmed by you, they're not in a position to hoard power like you are because they don't have as much as you do. So calm down. Like, listen, what's it cost you, right, Alicia? Que te cuesta? Que te cuesta? Yeah, it's true. The conversation isn't about, well, tomorrow there's going to be no police, so you better get ready. You better arm yourselves. And people, like you say, people already are. We still, we already have white people holding loaded weapons on protesters. Like, but that's okay because they're really relying on the police. So many of the times that, re- like, incidents that require 
quote unquote, require police intervention. I'm thinking mass shootings, a school shooting. Okay. What do we know about those people that go and shoot up schools or go and shoot up movie theaters? A lot of them have ties to racist groups. A lot of them have histories of committing domestic violence. A lot of them are like in cells and hate women. You know, like we know this, a lot of times these like these crimes are tied to systems of oppression that are supported by the police. It's just to me, I'm like, there's so much complexity to delve into there. Are you that afraid of having these conversations? People want the nonprofit world, at least the TV and the sexual assault fields to delve deep into prevention deep into prevention with no money and no other like recourse for folks who need intervention, who need, you know, help, therapy, counseling, support, food, housing, clothing, all the things. There's no like alternative for that. But we aren't allowed to say, hey, guess what? Cops shouldn't go and deal homeless mental health crisis. Like, <laughs> that's not, you don't want to call someone out with a loaded weapon or a teaser to deal with a person on the street having a mental health crisis. I don't get it. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. Like, we're the only ones who need to be working on prevention. Like, no, that's a whole, that's a whole nother thing, too. That whole thing about, I don't know, all the, I don't know if this is too bureaucratic now with all the funders who were like, we're only funding prevention work now, as if it exists in a silo. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, as if prevention and intervention aren't, like, totally intertwined. Yeah. Totally. The, the black and white thinking, I think it was you who said that, Shana, the black and white thinking, and Alicia, you had a lot of, like, really good examples of that, too. It's like, that's serving no one nobody except people that want to like other communities and we have a lot of clients right now we've gotten this influx of clients who refer who were referred by cps so they either have open cps cases or they're essentially like walking the line having one and you're telling them they have to do this this work or else you're going to take their kids like can if we want to talk about what would it be like outside of expectations and funding i know that's a very like individual thing and it's also a systemic thing where it's like You don't get to threaten people into taking care of themselves and not offering any resources for them to do it. And if you defund police, you might have resources. You might have money to allocate so that maybe they do have like a steady income and a steady place to live. And maybe then, you know, their lives will change entirely. But right now you're giving them nothing but threats. And expecting them to change something about the way that they're work- something's going in their lives. Sorry, that's totally tangential, and but it's just 
No, it's all valid. And also, back to the whole, like, the same people who are siloing prevention and intervention work are also saying that we should not defund the police and reallocate those funds. So which one is it? I don't know. I always think about, like, people are like, but my dad's a cop. So what, Garrett? Your dad's a cop. And what? We're not talking about your dad. We're talking about the system of policing and how it has been historically really harmful and has really racist and sexist origins and we need to not put so much of our our energy into it the history i I was i went to a workshop recently and they said the history of policing is a history of police reform reforms fail you can't reform a racist system you have to undo it entirely because the foundation's still there. Your your dad could be a perfectly good person outside of his job, but in his job he's operating um, to serve a system that is inherently oppressive. People need to be able to separate those things, and I do think that like if you're working at an org and you have uh, a collaboration with law enforcement, you have you know your core set of people that you're like really like as people, and then you know you're trying to like back them up like. It's an attack on them and their livelihood and them as people. And it's not, it's not about these individual people. It's about the system and how you can't operate in your full integrity in the system. We've had a couple of meetings with the local board of supervisors. And a couple of them just been really awesome. And they're like, yeah, we need to take money away from the police budget and put it into these services. And it's been just a no-brainer. And in the one meeting I was in in particular, they were like, you don't need to sell us on that. Like, we're going to back you up on that. Like, what else can we do? We don't even need to talk about that. Which, you know, been in those types of meetings before and those types of things are said. And when rubber hits the road, it doesn't always end up that way. But it's just to say, it's like, why is it that Someone outside of this work can just be like, well, duh. But I'm having, like, debates with people who do the work about it. Why? Well, and there's people that do, there's been, so I used to work in a divert program. And there were some cops in that program that were awesome. But a lot of times they were doing things that quote unquote, they shouldn't have been doing to help us. It's like that, that whole thing around like the, the, the protests about like cops kneeling or cops marching. It's like, okay, great, fine, great. And also it's not about them. Yeah. It's not about them. And I guess, so what do you want to be outside of funding and expectations and all those things? I want to be able to have those both and conversations. I want to be able to have plans and I want there to be some consensus outside of these small circles and just these, like, I know it's gaining some traction, which is really amazing, but I want to be able to have conversations outside of like certain groups about the fact that the whole entire system of like the police and the way they policed, like you say, Shana, it, you cannot reform it. You cannot reform it. So what are we going to do? 
I guess something also to consider about those cops that were kneeling. I know that at least a few of those instances, those same same cops were shooting tear gas and uh, shooting rubber bullets at protesters not too long after. So what was that? Some weird honeymoon stuff? Here are some flowers and chocolates. Make a wrong move and we're beating you up. Yeah. Sounds like domestic violence to me. There was actually That's a meme that funny. I saw of that exact thing of mm. cops kneeling um, is the equivalent of a person using abuse um, feeling remorseful and you know, asking for forgiveness and trying to what we know as like the hearts and flower honeymoon phase. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Because not long after some of these same folks, as you were saying, Shayna, were exuding violent behavior, being violent with protesters verbally saying get back or I'll shoot Mm -hmm. but yes please kneel in your uniform to you know show that you're down with it (laughs) thank you all for your insight and the great conversations and examples and reference to memes and tweets that are very important (laughs) thanks for facilitating what I do best. <laughs> Join us next time. Thanks for your facilitation, please. Thanks for joining us in this series on navigating with integrity. Like we mentioned before, this is going to be a series where we break down a visual mapping we created of all the exchanges we had during the course of Shelter in Place. We hope that this can be a starting point to have some deeper conversations about what it looks like to transform our workplace environments and our movements to better embody our values and the kind of world we want to see moving forward. You can find the mind map on our blog at womaninc.wordpress.com.